0: Um, but we are in the book of Job. We started there last week, um, and, and we are in a series called Singing in the Rain. Um, I guess I can stick that slide up there. Singing in the Rain about weathering life's storms. How do you find joy in struggles? What if your sorrows don't end? What if life just keeps hitting you left and right? What are we going to do, and what is the answer, and where is God, and is he good? And all of these questions that we have when it comes to suffering, uh, believe it or not, we can find the answers uh, in Scripture. And uh, we started off last week by uh, looking at the wisdom literature. There are three books of wisdom literature in the Bible. They are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And I'm not going to spend much time reviewing this, but I do want to spend just a little bit of time on this review for a brief second the book of proverbs okay it tells us that god is wise and just okay if you read the book of proverbs we understand that god is wise and just and that he's above all things and that he created all things and that he ordered all of things according to his justice and his wisdom and that righteous people are rewarded and unrighteous people are punished and that is because things are orderly right But then if you flip the page and you read Ecclesiastes, it starts off with meaningless. Everything is meaningless. There's absolutely no order in this world that we live in. And so if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you find out that righteous people actually end up having huge problems. And it seems like the unrighteous people get all of the good stuff. And the righteous people sit in ashes. And the unrighteous people get riches. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, Listen, life isn't fair. God isn't just. There is no order. It's all meaningless. And so we have these two books that seem to teach contradictory things. And then we get to the book of Job, which is like the key that helps us understand things. Because Job writes this story to us. And he says, In a world where good and evil exist. And it starts kind of like... um, it kind of reads like the beginning of a, a, a movie plot, right? In a world where good and evil exist, right? You can picture this, right? Um, where righteous and unrighteous live together, right? In the same world, in the same city. And our actions have consequences. And, and, and sometimes mysterious things occur. And we just have no idea why things are happening. In the midst of all of that, Job tells us that God is still wise. He is still just. He is always sovereign, and he cares. He is still righteous. He is always just. And Job is the answer to the dilemma in the first two books. And that's why we're going to study it today, because uh, we need to understand a little bit about sorrow and suffering in this world that we happen to live in. And y'all follow the news, right? Um, Y'all are aware of which major events this past week? Irma, okay. Anything else? Harvey, Harvey, right? Anything else? What? Fires, Fires, right? The western half of the United States is on fire, right? My my home in Montana is burning up. I'm getting pictures of people that I love and fire from their front porch they can see and the air is so thick that they're not supposed to go outside and, and I'm looking at the home that I grew up with is burning, you know, and I see that and I've got friends who have been evacuated from the hurricane zone and I've got friends that are staying put uh, in the hurricane zone, and we read about all of this, but did you guys know that there were landslides in southern Africa that killed hundreds of people this, this month? Did you know that there's an outbreak of dengue fever that has killed hundreds of people this month? Did you, and the list goes on and on and on. This world is full of suffering, right? Some of it's global and some of it's deeply personal. I bet if we were to be very honest with each other this morning, each one of us is touched by suffering in some way, shape, or form, whether it's ourselves and our own body and lives that are inflicted with suffering, or whether it's someone that we love and care for deeply who is going through something and we feel for them and we hurt for them, right? So we're all in the same boat here. We live in the world that Job describes. and, and Job's suffering is interesting. Uh, you know, you read this book, and there's very few specific details in terms of time. But a handful of times in this book, we get the idea that Job's suffering is long. Job's suffering lasts. Job's suffering goes on and on and on and on. Have any of you guys ever been in a phase of life like that? where it seems like left and right is just smack on one side and smack on the other side, and you're like a boat in a big ocean that just keeps getting tossed from side to side, and there's no good reason for it. You can't figure out exactly what's going on, Um, but you are just being tossed left and right. Um, Job's story tells us that he suffers for months and months and months. We get the idea when we read his story that when he loses everything, He then suffers for months before his friends come and sit with him. And then he suffers for months, and then he starts scraping his sores with uh, pottery shards, and he's suffering and suffering, in months and months and months it goes on. And then then his friends start belittling him. So it's not like his life was bad enough. And then he had friends that started treating him poorly. His suffering went on for months. Um, You read about the Apostle Paul. He suffered for about 50-some-odd years, shipwrecks, beatings. Uh, slanderings. He fled for his life. Uh, What am I missing? He went in jail multiple times, right? Um, and, And you want to know what he said about these 50 years of suffering in his life? He said it in Corinthians. He said this light and momentary affliction that I have is preparing an eternal weight of glory for the future, right? And so he took a look at his 50 years of suffering Right? And if you read Paul's story, from start to finish, I don't want that. Okay, And he said, all of this that I have endured, it is light and momentary affliction. It's like a bug that I can brush off in the, in the light, in the picture, in the scope of eternity. It's light and momentary, and God is good, and I'm going to keep going this direction. And this is where we find Job, and I want... I want to take you from the beginning of Job to the end of Job today. Okay, so just kind of put your seatbelt on, right? And I want to show you the. You guys know, know what a bell curve is. Y'all know, like it goes up and then back down again. So it starts down, goes up and down. Okay, I don't do math very well, but I remember bell curves. Okay. Um, now take the bell curve in your mind, flip it upside down. Okay. So now you've got like a kind of thing. Okay. I couldn't figure out how to make it look pretty on the screen, so I just need your imagination. That's Job's life in this book. Starts off okay, drops, hits rock bottom, and then goes back up. And I want you to see yourselves in this story, perhaps. So we're going to walk bit chapter by chapter through Job, and it's going to be a little quick, so just follow with me here. I want you to hear Job's story. Now, the two high points on the beginning and end of the upside-down bell curve are above the line of suffering okay so draw an imaginary horizontal line okay above your bell curve and then shift your bell curve up so just the two tips are sticking above that line okay you got that in your mind okay this is Job's life above the line of suffering in Job chapter 1 there was a man named Job and he was blameless and upright he feared God He had so many camels. I'm paraphrasing 10 verses here. 3,000 camels. Anybody got 3,000 camels? Nope. Job was rich. Okay. 7,000 sheep. He had 500 yoke. That means 1,000 oxen. 500 female donkeys. So many servants. He was great. People came to him for wisdom. He had children. Everything was good for Job. Right? This is above the line of suffering. Right? Things are going well for him. Um. Flip to verse uh, 20 in chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's room and naked I will return. The Lord gave to me all those things and the Lord has taken them away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now what happened in between the above line of suffering and the ripping his clothes off And He lost everything. If you read the verses in between... All of his oxen, all of his cattle, all of his donkeys, all of his camels, all but like three of his servants, all of his children and his family, gone. In the span of seconds, he gets notification. And before one servant can say, this is what happened, another servant comes in and says, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. And he keeps getting punched left and right everything has gone wrong and suddenly he's no longer above the line of suffering right he's dropped below the line of suffering but he's not in the pits right listen to his tone blessed be the name of the lord so sometimes when we suffer we've got this moment of faith that we can hold on to right god is still good i still trust him things are bad but i'm gonna hold on to my god because he loves me and he's righteous and he's just flip to chapter 2 verse 10 Some more bad things have happened. Job gets really sick. From head to toe, he's suffering in his body, but he's still alive. And he says this to his wife, who says, Job, just curse God and die. Just be done with it. Just get it over with. And he says, you speak like a foolish woman. Should I receive good from God and not evil? And Job didn't sin with his lips. Now, he's dipping down that bell curve, right? He's no longer saying the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Right? He's still got trust in God, but things are wearing on him. Have you been in this position? Right? Where you're slowly starting to decline into the, man, this is bad. Like this keeps getting worse and and I'm still trusting. But like on your bell curve, you're getting lower and lower under the line of suffering. Then you get to chapter three. I mean, the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's depressing. But in summary, let the day perish on which I was born. The whole of chapter 3 is, I wish I was never born. My life is so bad, so terrible, so horrible. I wish I was never born. It would have been better if I'd never happened than for me to endure what I'm enduring right now. And so you can tell on this bell curve, he just keeps dropping lower and lower. And it's not that his suffering has changed, right? The immense amount of suffering has already happened. But his, his desperation, his heart, and his emotions, they're all taking a toll under this line of suffering. You flip to chapter 7, okay? And he keeps dipping. Chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. I would choose strangling and death rather than life in my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Just leave me alone because my days are just a breath. Why are you sustaining my life, is what he is saying. My life is short. Why are you tormenting me, God? Just leave me alone and let me die. Right? So here we've got Job. Right? He's gone from praising God to... Why are you tormenting me, God? Just let me die. And then you get to chapter 10. And all the meanwhile, his friends are berating him back and forth. You get to chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. And the summation of this is, I am going to die. And even when I die, there will be no hope. It's all darkness. He's reaching a, a pit at the bottom, right? Have any of you guys ever been there? This bottom pit of suffering and sorrow and the weight of everything is sitting on you and you're basically like, well, I'm done for. I've got nothing. There's no hope. Even in death, there's no hope. That's what Job is saying. And you get to verse or chapter 13. Chapter 13, and he starts to get angry with God and he says, God is actually slaying me. And I have tried everything in my power to make this right, and I can't fix it. And the only hope I have is this God who's supposed to care about me, but this is his hand who is slaying me. I am stuck with hope in a God who's slaying me. This is where Job finds himself in chapter 13, verse 15. You get to chapter 14, and he takes even a further dip, if you can get even further. Chapter 14, 7 through 14, and he talks about the plants around him. He says, listen, I look at the trees and there's hope for them, because if you cut it down, it can sprout new life, you know? And, and, when, and when the seasons come and batter the plants and they seem like they're dead, a little root is still under the soil and it has survived and in the spring it blooms. But what about man? When man dies, man rots. What hope is there? This is in there. What hope is there for a resurrection, he says. He uses the term resurrection in the Old Testament. What hope is there that you would remember me after I die? If a man dies, is he going to live again? Job thinks, no, I don't think so at this point. And so he continues in that vein. He says in chapter 17, as he's brooding on this idea of death, verses 13 through 16, he's very morose at this point. If I hope for death, if I hope that death will become my home, If I make my bed in darkness, and if I say to the pit of death and darkness, you are now my father, and I say to the worm that will eat my flesh, you are my mother or my sister, where is my hope? Even if I die, I'm going to waste away to nothing, and there's no hope. This is Job's lot in life right He is so far under the weight and the sorrow of suffering that just keeps enduring forever with no gleaming light at the end of the tunnel. He can't see it. Have you guys been there? I've been there, okay? Many of you know that I've struggled with depression and anxiety for the past couple years. I have walked a line very similar to Job, where you get to the bottom and you go, I don't actually know if there's anything better than this, what I'm experiencing right now. Because under the weight of sorrow, your emotions start to play tricks on you, and your heart starts to fail you, and you start to wonder, is there anything better than what I'm experiencing? Can this ever get better? Is there redemption from what I am experiencing? But somewhere between chapter 17 and chapter 19, something shifts in Job's life, okay? Because the bell curve does go back up, right? So Job dips down and he sits in the darkness for a while. And then in chapter 19, if you flip there, verses 25 to 27. Now everything has left him. His friends, his family, his health. Even his wife is like, give up, man. Better you were dead than you be alive at this point. In the midst of all of this, he has come to a place where he says these words. Chapter 19, 25 through 27. I know my Redeemer lives. And at some point, he will stand upon this earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, I will see God face to face in flesh. My eyes will behold him and not another. And my heart (laughs) faints within me. I.e., I'm terrified of that day, but one day it's going to happen. I will see my Redeemer. And I'm not quite sure what that means but i have some questions for him he's not necessarily espousing a great hope of redemption he is espousing the idea that one day my redeemer will stand before me and i'll get to why'd you do this right we've all wanted to do that to god at some point or another if we're honest right we wanted to shake our fist at god why god why did you do this come down here and talk to me face to face And that's kind of where Job is. And there's this little bit of hope that perhaps God will meet him face to face. Perhaps God is the Redeemer. And at some point in the future, something will get sorted out and he'll get to have some answers. That's what he's looking for. Verse 26. He starts to change. Something in his life begins to change. Something in his heart and mind begins to change. Even though his circumstances aren't changing, he starts to praise God. The tail end of Job, moving forward, is a series of praises that he gives. Uh, Chapter 26, he describes the mighty greatness of God. He describes the glory of the heavens and the earth and the mountains and all of the things that he can see with his eyes. And in verse 14, 26 verse 14, he says this, Behold, everything that I can see are but the outskirts. Of your ways, the fringes of the way that you work and think, the 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 very small train of your glory, as it were, and how small a whisper do we hear of you? How very little of you do we actually see? Who can understand the power and the glory and the majesty of God? So He's turned in His suffering from going, "Woe is me! This is the worst thing that has ever happened to God." In the midst of my suffering, God is so big that I couldn't begin to understand what he's doing in this moment. If I don't understand how the sun gets up in the morning, I surely don't understand what's happening in my life. I can't fix it. I can't make the sun come up. So I'm just going to praise God in this moment. In chapter 28, he continues to praise God. Verses 12 and 13 and then verse 23. Where is wisdom found, he asks. Good question, right? We should ask this. Where is wisdom found? And where can I find understanding for my circumstances? Where am I going to find understanding? These are really good questions. Man doesn't know this. In fact, wisdom and understanding are not found in the land of the living. And it doesn't matter if we search in the oceans. And it doesn't matter if we dig it out. We can dig out gold from the ground. But we can't dig out wisdom from the ground, he continues. Verse 23, but God understands the way to it. God knows the place of wisdom. And so he is asked and answered a question. Where am I going to find wisdom? How can I take my circumstances and put them in perspective? I can't do that on my own. But God knows how to do that. God knows where wisdom amidst suffering is found. Only God has the wisdom and only through God are we able to have the wisdom and the perspective to say, like Paul said, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory. Um, Chapter 42, if you flip all the way to the end of the book, he praises nearly all the way to the end. Chapter 42. Verse five and six. I love this because earlier in the book, he says, where are you, God? God. I want you, my Redeemer, to come face-to-face with me. And then God shows up. Talks with him for a while face-to-face, right? And then in chapter 42, he's he's gone all the way down and he's sat at the bottom and he's praising and he's not sure what's happening, but his spirits are lifting and he's sitting at the line of suffering. At the line of suffering. He is full-on suffering, but... Face to face with God, he says these things. I've uttered what I didn't understand, and there are things that are too great for my mind to know. So God, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, but you need to make known to me, because before this, I have only heard about you through my ears. But now, now I see you face to face. Now I know who you are. And because I know who you are, I know who I am. And because now I know who I am, I can put things in perspective in place of you. He has been humbled in the presence of his Redeemer, and that didn't change his circumstances. He is still at the line of suffering, but he is at the line of suffering with his Redeemer, and that changed everything for Job. Now, if you flip a couple verses forward, the Lord restores Job's fortune. And I almost didn't want to tell you that, right? I almost didn't want to tell you that because when we read the book of Job, it's really easy to read the beginning and go, God was mean to Job. So many bad things happen. But God rewarded Job at the end for his good behavior because Job never sinned. And that's wrong, right? In this scripture, nowhere does God say, Job did a great job, and I'm going to reward him double for the way that he proved me right to Satan. That's not how God works. The entire book of Job is, Job didn't deserve it at the beginning or the end. His suffering, why? Right? Reality is why. Why did he get double the reward at the end? We don't know. But God in his wisdom and his mercy and his justice saw fit to do it. And it only makes sense in the light of God's wisdom so this bell curve of life that Job went on from above suffering to the bottom of suffering to the line of suffering the reality of suffering and Job's story teaches us this and this is I only have one point today all the people said this is a hard one though and there's only one because it's hard And if you're suffering, this is going to be doubly hard for you than if you're not suffering. If you're not suffering, take this nugget and chew on it and make it your own and work it into the fabric of your life so that when you do suffer, you have some foundation to stand on. And if you are suffering, this is truth for you from God's word, but it might not be easy. Okay? Sometimes God saves you through, but not from, your suffering. Sometimes God saves you through your suffering, but not always from your suffering. In, um, in Romans 8, I didn't even bookmark it. Romans 8, there's a great passage. It's in the New Testament, right near the end. Paul talking, right? Paul, the one who has suffered for 50 years, and he says an eternal weight of glory, because this is light and momentary. He says this, Chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Um, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray like we ought to, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too great for words. And when He, God, Spirit, who searches our heart, and he knows the mind of the spirit because he is the spirit and the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God we know that for all those who love God he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that's important remember that we're coming back to that those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the deal. You might not be saved from your suffering. You might be saved through your suffering. And this suffering produces in you something significant. Okay? There are things that you can obtain through suffering that you cannot obtain through ease. And there are three things that I want to highlight for you. Intimacy with God. There is a depth of intimacy with God that you can only obtain through deep suffering. And I don't wish that on anybody, but I want you all to know and be intimate with God. And I in my life have suffered deeply a handful of times that have left deep impressions on my heart, mind, and soul. Yet those are also the times when I have been met face-to-face with my Redeemer in a way that was life-altering. And I only know that because I suffered so deeply. And the deeper you're suffering, the deeper God's grace exists underneath it. Your suffering cannot go deeper than God's grace and mercy. And He will be right there underneath it, ready to bear up under you and support you through what He is going to carry you through. We see it in the book of Job, face-to-face with my Redeemer. Job was face-to-face with his Redeemer. Would he have been in that position had it not been for this journey of suffering? He would have gone about his life like normal. But suffering produced an opportunity for intimacy with God that might not have otherwise been had. Suffering also produces Christ-likeness in the believer. This is a hard one, right? Because we all want to be like Jesus, right? We want to be holy and refined and live a life after Jesus. And sometimes we think that means read our Bible and pray and go to church, and those are all great. I'm not knocking that. You should do those, right? Sometimes we think it means sharing the gospel. Great. I'm not knocking that. Do that. But Christ-likeness, Jesus says, is found by denying yourself and picking up the cross, which is suffering, and walking the path that Jesus walked, suffering for the gospel. He says, Narrow is the path, and few who are that find it, because those that truly follow me will suffer, but I will be with them. Jesus himself knows the worst kind of suffering. In fact, we will not suffer the worst suffering, because Jesus suffered the worst suffering. The worst suffering is separation from God because of the wrath of God upon sin. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place so that we don't experience eternal separation, but we can have eternal joy with Christ forever and ever. Amen. The things that we experience in the light of that are light and momentary afflictions because they are temporary and we get to experience eternal with Jesus And as we are suffering, he can come to us. And what does it say that I said we would come back to? Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And in the context of chapter 8, he says, Consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us And while you are suffering, he is conforming you to the image of his son. Your suffering is not meaningless. It is conforming you to the image of Christ. And there is great joy to be had in that. But that is a hard thing to swallow, is it not? It also produces longing for the kingdom. When you are suffering... What do you want more than anything else? Comfort. Anybody want to have the flu and be stuck in an airport throwing up in a trash can? Anybody? I've been there. My wife can testify to that. That was not a fun trip. Okay? No. When you are sick, where do you want to be? Home. Right? In your bed or on your couch. With the people that love you and support you and your mother whispering soft things as she puts the cold cloth on your forehead bringing you a cup of water the medicine that makes you feel better right when you are suffering in this temporary world what should your heart long for kingdom jesus the future the eternal and so often we set our minds on how can i get out of this momentary thing how can i alleviate this suffering right now and tomorrow feel better in the flesh but the reality is we might not feel better in our flesh tomorrow we can't control it but we can submit our hearts and our minds to jesus and lay everything that is before us in front of him and say i'm looking forward to the kingdom This light and momentary affliction is really terrible. You know, it's horrible. But on the scope of eternity to eternity, it's barely a dash. And I can endure this for the glory that is set before me. What did Jesus say? Uh, Or it was said about Jesus in scripture for um, he despised the shame and he endured the suffering for the glory that was set before him. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, pick up your cross and do the exact same thing. For the glory Christ had set before him, he endured that. And he's not heartless because he knows that we suffer. Which is why when he entered Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world and he stood up on the hill, he wept for the city because they were like sheep without a shepherd and they didn't know better. They were suffering and they didn't have hope and he was going to give them hope. He was going to be the hope. The Redeemer died on the cross, buried in the grave, rose on the third day, lives and rules right now from heaven so that we can go join him one day. Amen? Amen. And you know what he says in scripture? And this is how I'm going to close. He says it in Matthew come all who are weary and brokenhearted and I will give you rest for your soul. He will save you through, not always from, but he will promise to give you rest for your soul. And when your soul is at rest, your body and the world around you fall into place under the wisdom and the justice and the tender hand of God. So this morning, as the team comes to lead us in a song of response, Perhaps you go to the prayer wall and write prayers down, interceding for those that you know in your life are suffering. And we will pray for them. But perhaps you come here and you lay your weary and burdened heart before the Lord. Again, it might be on behalf of someone. It might be on behalf of those suffering from the dengue fever and um, the cholera outbreak and Irma and Harvey and all of the things that are going on. People are suffering and we can intercede. It might be that you don't even have words for everything and you just, and God intercedes with groanings that are too great for words, but do not let this morning escape and you leave this room with suffering not yet put under the wisdom and the tender hand of God. Come, ye all who are weary and suffering, and I will give you rest for your souls. My burden is easy, and my yoke is light. You want to know why? Because he took all of the weight, and he gives you rest. Lord, this morning, uh, we recognize that we've talked about something that is hard. Suffering might not end on this side of heaven. We might live through seasons that are challenging and difficult and painful. And yet you are good and righteous and just and holy and sovereign and you work in and through and around us to prepare for us a place in heaven with you. But sometimes that means we are going to grab your hand and walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But you tell us not to fear because you are with us. And we give you glory and honor and praise for that. And in a world that's full of sorrow and trouble, and we don't know what to say, and we wonder, God, where is wisdom? And where are your hands? And why aren't you working? And why don't we have the answers? The best thing we can do is ask you and allow you to speak wisdom into our hearts. We lay ourselves before you in a physical way, in an emotional way, in a spiritual way, and we trust you. Hear our prayers and speak to us. May we listen and receive. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.